0: Hey, it's Leah. Before we start this episode, I just wanted to tell you about this other show called Stuff the British Stole. It's from CBC Podcast and Australia Radio National, and it's got all the story elements I love. It's got colonial theft. It's got museums denying that theft. It's got intrigue. It's got jokes by Australians. Join host Mark Furnell as he picks one artifact and takes you on the wild, evocative, sometimes funny and often tragic adventure of how it got to where it is today. Check it out on the same thing that you're listening to this on or on CBC Listen.
1: This is a CBC Podcast. Come on, come
2: on, come on and all to X167 Montreal.
0: This is The Secret Life of Canada, a podcast about the country you know And the stories, you don't.
3: Hey, Leah. Hey, Phelan. So last time on the show, we looked into the Indians of Canada Pavilion at Expo 67. The title is indeed a bit outdated, but yes, that's where we went.
0: Right. So if you missed part one, this is part two. As we've said, Phelan is kind of obsessed with Expo. So here we are.
3: But in all honesty... What is not to love? Expo was a giant world's fair. There were concerts. TV shows were filmed there. There was an amusement park, La which is actually still a full functioning, and I, planned on, I plan on attending ASAP. Uh, there were pavilions from across the world with food and drink, and it was attended by 50 million people. And to put that into a bit of perspective, Canada's population in 1967 was around 20 million people.
0: I have been inside so much lately. Going to Expo sounds pretty amazing if I
3: if I'm totally honest. <laughs> Seriously, but you know, we can kind of go there through these episodes. Oh yes, how can I forget our
0: pretend monorail ride last episode complete with clowns. It was highlight. It was a <laughs> highlight.
3: Yeah. Okay, this is true. But we also learned a lot. In part one, we looked at the planning that led up to Expo 67 and more specifically at the planning that led up to the Indian Pavilion. We also looked at some of the artists who created works that were present at the pavilion.
0: And we chatted with Barbara Wilson, who was one of the hostesses.
3: Yes, we did. And we're going to hear more from Barbara and another woman who was a hostess at the pavilion who actually kind of has a connection to the show. I had some real Nancy Drew moments researching this one, so buckle up. Very intriguing. Yes, I cannot wait to share that story with you. And so last time we basically got to the front door of the Indians of Canada Pavilion, but we didn't really get to go um, like and look inside, so today we're going to do that. And Leah, for today, I will be your hostess at the Indian Pavilion. Let me just put on my hostess hat.
0: Okay, so you know I can see you right in your in your bedroom right now <laughs> on Zoom. But come on, okay, play okay, along. yes, okay, I'll play along. Ooh, beautiful hat, very nice. Thank
3: you. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm, I try to be very method in my
2: approach. Um, I see. Oh,
0: and you will need this. Okay. Oh, what's this? <laughs> it's your passport. How did you get my passport? See how well I'm doing.
3: You're doing very good at (laughs) pre Next episode will just be a virtual tea party. (laughs) Um, Okay, so this is not your passport, but this is your passport for Expo. If you attended Expo 67, you would get a stamp at each pavilion that you went to. Shall we head in? Yep, let's do it. Okay, so here's your stamp. Technically, you would have gotten this stamp at the end of the pavilion, but let's fudge this for today because pretend is getting a little tedious already.
0: (laughs) I haven't said anything in the last 3.5 seconds. Okay, so
3: where are we now? So here we are inside the Indians of Canada Pavilion at Expo 67. We are currently in the reception area. People in the reception area would have seen this welcome figure carved by Coast Salish carver Simon Charlie. The figure stood with its hands outstretched. Traditionally, a carving like this, it would have stood at a longhouse on the west coast. The figures would have been visible from the water, so if you were canoeing by and you saw it, it meant that visitors were welcome. And if they didn't? Well, it might not be a good time to visit.
0: Okay, so you'd have to find a good Holiday Inn instead or something yeah, like that. Yeah. Okay, gotcha.
3: You can see welcome figures all over the West Coast now. Simon Charlie, who carved this figure, was a master carver and a teacher. He passed in 2005, but his carving work can be seen at the Royal BC Museum, at Parliament in Ottawa, and all over the world. He even got the Order of Canada in 2003. I watched a lot of videos of him carving, and his work is pretty amazing.
0: I looked him up while you were talking. Not that I wasn't paying attention, but I was Googling. And his work is so detailed and it's just so beautiful.
3: Also in this reception area, on the wall,
0: you would have seen the following message. The Indians of Canada bid you welcome. Walk in our moccasins trail of the past. Live with us in the here and now. Talk with us by the fire of the days to come.
3: So for me, that statement, written so blatantly on the wall at a building, you know, that was there to celebrate the Canadian centennial, it says something about the lineage of Indigenous people on this land, while also pointing forward, something that says, and yes, we still exist.
0: Yeah, and I keep thinking, you know, this is 1967, so this this was the time that Westerns like Bonanza and Gunsmoke, uh, those TV shows were really, really popular.
2: ...stays out there and exposes his family to them murdering savages is plum crazy. You can't fight a Pawnee war party all by yourself. And we sure ain't getting no help from the law around here.
0: The structure of a Western is settlers against indigenous people, you know?
3: Yes, yes. And the perception of indigeneity at that time would have been very much locked in the past. You know, this is a time when kids were very much playing cowboys and Indians. But back to the pavilion. Also in the reception area, you would see items selected to represent different Indigenous people. To the right of the welcome figure was a ramp that visitors would walk up. Uh, So Leah, if you would follow me... So the incline on this ramp was intentional and it was meant to signify an upward struggle for First Nations people. It was also intentionally narrow so that visitors had to walk in a single file. This single file walking was to signify a time when some indigenous people would live in a nomadic lifestyle, moving and following game. Walking through here, you would have heard some croaking of frogs, loons and other animals. On either side of the ramp, there were trees and bushes, and at the end of the ramp, visitors would see a moon carving.
0: You know what? I love any public space that makes you walk in a single file because I hate crowds <laughs>
3: and don't stand too
0: close to me, even, even without the pandemic.
3: Don't stand so close to me. Okay. And now we would have been in an area of the pavilion called The Awakening of the People, It was brightly painted in gold tones and had very large windows. Here you would see images of Indigenous inventions and technologies, um, things like cradleboards, snowshoes, baskets, drums, and items from nations across the country. Also in this section, you would have a good view of the pavilion's artificial lake. Wow, even an artificial lake. This was a really immersive experience. This next section speaks about when settlers arrived. In this area, visitors would have seen the following text on the wall.
0: When the white man came, we welcomed him with love. We sheltered him, fed him, led him through the forest. The great explorers of Canada traveled in Indian canoes, wore Indian snowshoes, ate Indian food, lived in Indian houses. They could not have lived without Indian friends. Boom. Well,
3: there <laughs> we are getting <laughs> some not, truth bombs. Not They're not holding back yeah, there. It's not Yep. Yeah. And so other texts around the pavilion, you know, cut even deeper into the Canadian celebrations with words like, You've stolen our native land, our culture,
0: our soul. And? The white men fought each other for our land, and we
3: were embroiled in the white man's war. And one of my personal favorites. Give us the right to manage our own affairs. Some things, unfortunately, never get old. The messaging in the pavilion was really challenging for some people. And I think that was part of it. You know, uh, people walked into this teepee and really expected to be told a familiar, comfortable story.
0: Right. So people would enter the building, see a teepee and maybe think, oh, this will be like a fun, you know, like the Westerns we were talking Mm -hmm. about. Mm -hmm. Um, But then once they got in, they started getting some of these hard truths and things probably started getting uncomfortable for some.
3: Yes. And some people who went in were not happy about those truths. In an article from The Globe and Mail titled Indian Pavilion Tries Not to Be Restful, it was reported that one woman said, This is horrible and I'm not going to stay here. Another headline from the Globe and Mail was titled, Indians spend expo cash to tell of poor deal. But the people who were most unhappy about the pavilion and its messaging was the government. What the Indians of Canada pavilion was saying went directly against the story Canada was trying to spin to the rest of the world.
0: Right. And there would be this global audience with eyes on the
3: country. Yes. Indian Affairs Minister Arthur Lang was said to have expressed dissatisfaction because the contributions of the Canadian government to the Indians had not been given recognition. Oh, Arthur.
0: Come on, Arthur. You know that's (laughs) not true. It sounds like the quote-unquote government contributions were clearly spelled out, and maybe that's why, Arthur, you felt uncomfortable.
3: I really like how you're going at Arthur here. Come on, Arthur. (laughs) Come on. I've read that some government officials wanted some of the panels and texts removed from the pavilion, but they couldn't really get them out of there because it had already been reported by the press.
0: Right. Nothing says I'm guilty quite like destroying the receipts, just like the RCMP did in the Colton Bushy investigation.
3: Oh, sorry. Is that too soon? Mm. Maybe we should. No, I don't think it okay, is. OK, it's I, not I, too I really soon. I don't think it is. Yeah. OK. OK. <laughs> Okay. So Canada did really want to show off at Expo. There were a lot of global leaders in attendance. After the Queen went through the pavilion, she was apparently silent, according to an article in The Globe. The article also stated the Queen carefully ignored a huge lightened display of peace treaties signed by her ancestor, George II, in a display the Indians called the Broken Treaties Section. I'm not surprised
0: to hear she didn't say anything while walking through the pavilion. I mean, what is there to say, really? But what an opportunity it was to have her there.
3: But it would have been, you know, a huge opportunity for the organizers of the pavilion to really show the British crown just what had come of so many of our people aligning with them. To me, I'd like to think that she was silent in shame, but something inside me tells me the truth and highly doubts that. Near the end of this section, there was also a large map of Canada with reserves marked off. And for me, that really highlights what, you know, signing those treaties led to Indigenous bodies on reserves.
0: Yeah, and so seeing how much territory was lost in working with and becoming allies to settlers.
3: Mm -hmm. Yes. Near this map, there was a text panel that read,
0: The reserve is our last grip on the land. Many of our people fear that if the reserve should disappear... The Indian would disappear with it.
3: And these words feel really poignant and current to me. I think this is a feeling that many Indigenous people still have in regards to reserves. The existence of them is deeply messed up, but I still feel incredibly proud of my reserve and where I come from. You know, it is my home. Next to this large map, visitors would have seen images of life in communities across the country at the time. Some were more urban, some more slum-like. This is so incredible and also poignant because, you know, we're
0: talking about 50 years ago and I'm hearing the same sentiments and language today from Indigenous people in regards to land.
3: So let's pass through the Broken Treaty section of the pavilion and head to the section of the pavilion on religion.
0: Like, I want to be enthusiastic about that, but it it doesn't sound super fun. But here we
3: go. Here we go. (laughs) (laughs) But I have to say that if I could see any part of the pavilion, this is the section I would see. Okay. And why? Why do you find it so interesting? So there's a specific piece of artwork in this area. It was a carving of a bear by Lenape carver Nathan Montour. Across the bear, there was this shaft of light in the shape of a cross. Text above the
0: bear read... The early missionaries thought us pagans. They imposed upon us their own stories of God, of heaven and hell, of sin and salvation. But we spoke with God, the Great Spirit, in our own way. We lived with each other in love and honored the Holy Spirit in all living things.
3: The bear carving looks up into the light of the cross and seems frozen, almost paralyzed. And the bear also has a forked tongue. When I saw this image of the bear, it gives me like it just it gives me chills even to talk about it. There's mm-hmm. something about it that is just so visceral mm-hmm. about Hearing this Hearing about it gives me chills. Yeah, Russell Moses, you'll remember uh, we spoke with his son John in episode one. Russell was one of the commissioners of the pavilion, and you know he said of this specific section, the Christian religion destroyed the Indian way of life. And Russell was a
0: government employee, so it seems kind of shocking or at least interesting that he could be so blunt.
3: Absolutely. And, you know, although Russell was working for the Department of Indian Affairs and for the pavilion, I think he was also engaging in his own resistance in multiple ways. One of them was he planted a corn patch outside of the pavilion, which seems like a pretty small thing. But there were all of these contracts that were in place for all of the um, gardening. Mm -hmm and so him planting that did not sit well with people but it grew and it grew and it grew and by the end of expo he had harvested it and given it out to some members <laughs> of indian affairs
0: amazing amazing
3: now that's grassroots baby <laughs> <laughs> yeah totally that's great that's great
0: so it seems to me as you would walk through the content might have felt like it got more and more challenging to certain visitors
3: yeah and i think especially in quebec you know the the catholic church really shaped Quebec culture at this time. In this next section, we would see images of contemporary Indigenous working life. There were pictures of people working in offices in the medical field and also in the logging industry. It was to show more of a contemporary picture of Indigenous life, you know, that we were and are alive, uh, that we weren't historical leftovers. If you follow Amelia, we will head into the next section with more truths, more and more and more truths. So this section was on education. And instead of hearing about this from me, I thought that we could hear it from Velma Robinson, who was a hostess at the pavilion. Um, This is from a program called Expedition that aired on CBC Radio in August of 1967 let's move miss robinson into the final part of the pavilion and here the perhaps note of unhappiness or the the note of questioning comes in to the indians of uh, canada pavilion because we see here that um, everything isn't really entirely happy uh, with the situation of the indians in canada what are you uh, what What is your point that you're trying to make in this section, Ms. Robinson?
0: Well, here we definitely see the different values of the both societies. The Indian child, when he first goes to school, he has to learn a new language, sometimes two, and quite often he has been forbidden to speak his own Indian language. In the schools he doesn't learn anything about his history, his ancestors, or his traditions. It is a completely new thing to him. And many of the characters that he has to learn about, he has never heard of, and they don't mean anything to him at all.
3: Dick and Jane and their dog Spot don't really mean too much to uh, many Indian children. No, not at all. So that was Velma Robinson from Rankin Reserve. It's now known as Batchewana. Uh, The reserve is in northern Ontario. And in that clip, she's telling CBC reporter Jim Robertson about the education section of the pavilion. And in that clip, you can hear her reference Dick, Jane and Spot. Characters in this reading series that was really popular at the time. The text panels in this room showed the vast disparity between white children in Canada, aka Dick and Jane, and Indigenous children who were being sent to residential schools. The text panels in this section read The White Man's School,
0: an alien land for an Indian child. An Indian child begins school by learning a foreign tongue. Dick and Jane in the storybook are strangers to an
3: Indian boy. At this time, residential schools were alive and well, but not many Canadians really understood what was going on in those places or or they didn't want to see it. This was the first time for a lot of Canada that they were learning about what the federal government was paying for.
0: Yeah, I wonder if it was a shock for a lot of people. I'm sure it was for some. I mean, this would have been years and years before the Truth and Reconciliation Mm -hmm. Commission, a time when the residential school system wouldn't have been really obvious to a lot of Canadians.
3: And I think the point that the education section was trying to, you know, punctuate was showing the contrast between indigenous children's school life and white children's school life. You know, a comfortable white suburbia next to indigenous children living in poverty or in a residential school.
0: I just love that they showed the truth. You know, it would be actually pretty brave at this time because I'm sure there were many other cultural pavilions that only showed, you know, the nice side of things. It was really well done.
3: This would have concluded the tour, but there was one final section where visitors could look at an artificial fire. The final panel would have read, And now, my
0: brother, sit down by the fire. Let us talk about the times which are coming. You have traveled over the long footpaths along which your forefathers trudged. In a moment we shall take to the trail again, but during this stop
3: let us search in the flames for the vision of the future. In this space, there were messages recorded on headsets that stressed self-determination for First Nations people.
0: And I imagine there would be a lot to reflect on if you made it through. Mm -hmm. You know, something I wonder about is how these hostesses would have dealt with the general public because, you know, in episode one, when you said, oh, there were all these hostesses, I'm picturing, you know, the 1960s little pillbox hats and Mm -hmm. just fun and frivolity. I kind of think like, hey, Mm -hmm. welcome to the Indian Pavilion. But, you know, the, the stuff presented was truthful and heavy. So it must have been incredibly challenging for them. Or was it?
3: That was a question I had. And I thought a lot about that. You know, and what you and I do in terms of presenting history, Mm -hmm. you know, which is what these women were doing. And while we, you know, we love doing it, it is (laughs) it's like taxing and frequently
0: scary work. And we don't have to look anybody in the face to see the reaction. That's it.
3: Yes. And so I have a ton of admiration for what these women working at the Indian Pavilion were doing, you know, changing minds and shifting views. I asked Barb Williams about her
2: experience with the public. And then there were all these things that said exactly what happened to First Nations. You know, they were at times very abrupt and it caused a lot of angst amongst the people, especially Americans, because they were quite upset with how people from away were portrayed. But it was the truth, you know, it was the truth.
3: So you spoke a bit about leading people through the pavilion. And some Mm -hmm. people not being necessarily enthralled, enthralled, excited about it. Did you see
2: minds changed? I don't know that we spent enough time with people, you know, because it was like being in a factory. There Mm. were so many people. And all you could think about was, okay, how do I give them enough information? How do I get them through? Because if you're on a a team of four and you got people that are lined up from the door all the way around because they want to get in. And some of them you don't give tours, some you do give tours. You know, you try to do what you can. I always hoped that it was going to make people dig and do research because there was no way that everybody could believe what was on those panels, because they were, some of them were quite harsh. You know, the The belief that we get everything for nothing. And if you think about it and you realize that every part of Canada was owned by a nation and we got pushed onto reserves, the buffalo were killed out here, the fish are being killed. You know, it's still going on. Genocide for want of a... Kind of word, there isn't really one, and looking at what the background of all that is, and and you know, looking at terra nullius, and looking at doctrine of discovery, looking at our our constitution, the Canadian constitution, and thinking about the implications of economic development and the extractive businesses that that exist all across the world, not just Canada, but all across the world, you know. People don't want to think that this land belonged to someone before they got here. And so how could you accept the things that the First Nations are saying if you want to believe that the land was bare and nobody owned it?
3: So when I set out to work on this episode, I really wanted to get it right. Um, You know, we always do. But I wanted to make sure that I got all the names of the women who were hostesses, everyone I could find who was listed. But it was really tricky. And one name was particularly difficult for me to figure out. Our script editor, Yvette Nolan, when I told her I was working on the show, she said, my aunt was a hostess for the pavilion. And I could find no record of her aunt as a hostess. So when I contacted Barbara Wilson, things became clearer.
2: Stella, her... Niece and I are best friends, are good friends. And Stella's in Ontario, I think, or Quebec, one of those two. And her name is Stella? Chabot. She's not listed
3: in a lot of the things I have.
2: She came later because Barbara Stevenson, who was my roommate, got sent home. Oh, why did she get sent home? (laughs) She didn't adhere at times, mine and neither did I, to all the rules and regulations that they put in front of us. So
3: Stella Chabot replaced one of the other hostesses, Barbara Ann Stevenson, or Barbara Ann, that was her stage name. Mystery solved, Nancy Drew. Very, very (laughs) good. It was a big one. This was, I was like, wow, I was really, I was very proud of myself. Anyway, so with that mystery solved, I needed to find Stella Chabot and... How are you going to do that? You go on Facebook, right? That's how you find people. <laughs> Especially, I find elders. There's a lot of I elders. was going to say,
0: mm-hmm. 70 plus, that's where they're all hanging Man, out. Yeah,
3: it's, it, it's the easiest place, and they get back to you right away. So I sent Stella a message, and she got back to me right away.
1: Okay, great. Um, And I should say hello to you from Yvette,
3: um, Yvette Nolan, who works on the
1: show. Oh, you know, yeah, yes, yes, yes. How is Yvette doing? Oh, she's great. She's in
3: Saskatoon. She's been out there for a while now. I wanted to know how Stella had become a hostess and if she could confirm the names of the other hostesses. There wasn't much information about who was there. So I figure why not go straight to the source? The number that I've heard different numbers um, tossed around for the hostesses. Uh, that were a part of the Indian Pavilion. And I've heard the number 12, I've heard the number 13, and I've heard the number 14. I have Janet Lawrence. Yes. Marie Knockwood. Yes. Yeah. Philomene uh, Des... Sorry, I'm not de my friend. Philomene
1: Desire. Desire. De Thank yeah. you.
3: Dolores Delorme. Yes. Delphine Blackhorse. Diane Dibo, Alice Marchand. Yes. Velma Robinson. Janet Morris. Vina Starr. Yes. Doreen Stevenson. Who? Doreen Stevenson, stage no. name Barbara Barbara Ann, who you replaced?
1: Oh, <laughs> that's the one, Barbara Ann Stevenson, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. the one I played. Mm-hmm. Yes, 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 yes. Addie Toback, Adeline Tobac, yes, yeah. Barbara Wilson, yes, and yourself, yes. That's it.
0: This is pretty cool and
3: kind of amazing. What a, what a small world. I know. I was really curious to know what it was like for Stella when she got the call to head to Expo.
1: So I was enrolled at uh, the secretarial uh, school because that's what everybody did back then, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, most people anyways, or especially reserve people, we, we didn't know anything about university or anything like that. So I was enrolled in that secretarial school and, uh, then one day there was a big kerfuffle. The principal comes running into my class and he, he drags me out of the class and I said, what's going on? He says, they want you at Expo. I said, what? You know, and so anyways, I got on the phone and sure enough, they said, okay, we're sending you, uh, and then we boarded a train and then we went to Montreal. I, I mean, you had to apply for this, you know. And mm-hmm. uh, my brother in law was the was the one who, who had suggested it, and because I didn't know anything about it, I, I mean, I knew Expo was a big, you know, big thing coming. And uh, so uh, I was, uh, I had gone for an interview, and there was a whole, there were several girls, there was a whole bunch of girls from Ontario, and uh, and then that's how I ended up in 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 uh, in uh, Montreal at Expo sixty seven. When I look back on it now, I think, oh my God, it really changed my life because who knows what would have happened, right, if I had stayed in Winnipeg, you know?
3: So, in that clip, you hear Stella talk about her brother in law, and that would have been a vet, our script editor's father. Wow. (laughs) I know, it's such a small world. Stella had some pretty good remembrances of people that she had met at Expo. So I wanted to hear her talk a bit about that.
1: So we met the Queen. That was a big thing. Harry Belafonte came, James Baldwin. Yeah, and I happened to be reading his book at the time. And I got him to sign and I got his autograph. But I don't know where that book went. Probably lost somewhere in transit. Yeah, that was my treasure.
3: I was like, James Baldwin? What? Wow, 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 wow. Lucky. Yeah, yeah. Barbara also had some brushes with fame. Here she is talking about a friend of hers taking a picture of her and the Shah of Iran, um, as well as some other celebrity encounters. This is all amazing.
2: I have a picture of the Shah of Iran, and I have a picture of myself. I thought he was quite attractive. And... I'm standing in the crowd in my uniform and Walter is watching what's going on with me and the Shah of Iran walks out and him and I make eye contact. Walter sees it when it happens and he takes a picture of the Shah of Iran, and he takes a picture of me and he, he gets it developed and sends it to me. I have a picture of myself with Harry Belafonte who was a singer. I have a picture from Wayne Newton. They gave me tickets to go to their shows. And I actually went to dinner with Wayne Newton and his family. Years later, I went to Vegas and spent time with him and his family.
0: So the Shaw Varon was a smoke show. Good to know. Thank you um, for this information. And Wayne Newton and Harry Belafonte, I mean, they were big time celebrities in mm-hmm. this time period. So that's also pretty amazing. It would have been like seeing, you know, Celine Dion would be mm. the equivalent of Wayne Newton mm-hmm. and the equivalent of Harry Belafonte would still actually be Harry Belafonte because, yeah. <laughs> you know, he's iconic and he's still he's still doing it. Yeah.
3: Yes. So one thing I was really curious about was the uniforms.
0: Oh, really? Since you keep being like, I'm putting on my invisible hat and my <laughs> invisible gloves. <laughs> yeah. What, what were they wearing?
3: Yes. OK, so I wanted to hear from them who actually got to wear the real outfit, what it was like. One thing that I've, you know, and I've seen pictures of it, but I'm wondering if you could describe the uniform,
2: the outfit that you wore. It was itchy. That was my first question, because it looks kind of itchy. Inside, it was beautiful, okay? The lining was silk. As a matter of fact, I still have my uniform. No. <laughs> my other, I had, we each were given two uniforms, and one of my uniforms went to the Museum of Natural History in Hull, so that's where one of them is. My other one is here. And my pillbox hat, I lost in a fire, which made me very sad because I loved the little hats we wore. And the jacket, it was amazing. I loved the cut of it, but it went down below our knees because we had to be ladylike. We all shortened our uniforms. I mean, we didn't want to look like little, little ladies when The girls from the British pavilion and all the other pavilions were wearing mini skirts at that time. And there we were with these longer dresses and we just said, no. Not happening, so we sh- We all shortened our dresses.
0: Oh, nice. I love that they
3: shortened their own hemlines. Yeah.
0: It's very 1960s, what I picture it to be like.
2: You
3: can tell there's a real sense of pride from some of these women who did the job. You know, it was hard to be far from home and, you know, kind of tossed into the middle of this giant global party. But a lot of these women had fond and lasting memories of their experiences. I wanted to let Barbara and Stella have the last word on Expo 67.
1: Oh, well, it was just a fantastic, it was really a life-changing experience for me. And I think for a lot of the girls, it's just too bad that we can't reenact that period, that time and bring all the, well, well, the artists are long gone, but they've been replaced by other artists. But those artists, they were just amazing. They were, oh, words just escaped me to describe the artistic work that there was in that pavilion. I'm
2: very, very grateful that they stood their ground and told it like it was. It could have been Walt Disney otherwise, you know. They did a good job. If I was to do it again, I might study. <laughs> You know, because I didn't. <laughs> it was all about having fun. I was I was twenty three. I was just a young woman, just a young woman. But uh, it was good. It's good.
3: The Secret Life of Canada is recorded in Toronto on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee, Wendat and most recently the Mississaugas of the Credit.
0: It was written and hosted by me, Leah Simone Bowen.
3: And me, Phelan Johnson. Our producer is TK Matunda and our script editor is Yvette Nolan. Research assistance by Andrea Eidinger.
0: Additional editing by Brayden Alexander. Our digital producer is Fabiola Melendez Carletti. Senior producer is Tina Verma. And the executive producer of CBC Podcasts is Arif Narani. You can find us on social media at Secret Life of Canada. And if you want to get in touch, email us at secretlifeofcanada at cbc.ca. I just wanted to take a break to tell you about another CBC podcast I think you might like. It's called Death in Cryptoland. It's a true story about a crypto tycoon, his secret past, his sudden demise, and an online sleuth's obsession to unravel the truth behind his mysterious company. You can check it out on the same thing that you're listening to this on or on CBC Listen.
1: For more CBC podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.